So I want to start off this morning telling you a story. Uh, just thinking about the story, we're going to talk about Naaman. And, and the story of Naaman being healed uh, is just really one of those wild, almost unbelievable stories. So I thought I'd tell you a, a wild, unbelievable story about myself or uh, something that happened to me. And then we're going to look at uh, the healing of Naaman and just try to think of these as kind of similar stories in the way that when you hear them, they should shock us a little bit. It should surprise us the way God works uh, because he works in such surprising ways. So uh, I've got, uh, on my mom's side, or I had, I had an aunt, a great aunt named Verda. And Verda lived in Wise County, and she lived out on a farm, and I remember going to their house, and it was like going back in time. Like they had one of those old refrigerators from the 40s with all the ice inside of it that had built up over the years, and it had turned yellow, and all. And I would think, are we going to eat food from out of that thing? Uh, but Verda was great. You know, she was wearing those 60s cat-eye glasses well into the 1990s. Uh, she was just a simple woman, but she loved my mom. And she was always really fascinated with everything my mom was doing. So she would cut out when my mom, when, like Adelaide, my mom would be in the paper. She did pageants and sang and did all sorts of different things. And Verda would always cut out all the clippings from my mother's different activities. And my mom's big claim to fame is she used to ride with uh, to all the beauty pageants. Is anybody here old enough to remember who Phyllis George is? Do you all remember Phyllis George? She was Miss America. My mom rode to all the pageants with Phyllis George, which was a bad thing because Phyllis George would then win all the pageants. But she at least would ride with her. And so, you know, Verda was really interested in all this. She would cut everything out. And so Verda uh, passed away last year. But before she passed away, she went through all of her things and maybe she was sensing that the end was near. And she gathered up all those things that she had kept for over 50 years of all my mother's newspaper clippings. And she put them in an envelope and she mailed them to my mom. And so my mom's going through these, these different newspaper clippings. And if you can put that first picture up there. So this was one of the clippings that my mom pulled out of that envelope. And that's my mom when she's so pretty when she was a bride. And so here, here it talks about, you know, the bridal party, the types of sleeves that were on the bridesmaids gowns. It's some kind of weird word. Uh, they'll see that on there. I don't know. I can't find it. Uh, but you know, they, they describe empire waistline kabuki sleeves. I don't know what that means. I don't know what a kabuki sleeve is, but it must have been fancy. So this is what she pulls out of here, and she's looking at it. And I've seen this newspaper clipping actually my whole life. So it was in a it was in a photo album, and so we'd flip through the early days of my parents' marriage and see the this clipping of my mother. You know, as a bride that was in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram back there in 1971. Well, she's got this clipping now, though, that's not glued down to the photo album. And she just, she said, I just was curious what was on the back. So you can show the next slide. And so she turns it over. And this is really strange here. It says, nuptial rights at Gorman unite Miss Porter and Tommy J. Clark. Y'all know who that is? Those are my in-laws. That's my wife's parents' wedding announcement. Now, even just telling you this gives me goosebumps, right? Because this is like the weirdest thing that, and the most amazing thing 
that I've ever really kind of experienced. So she said she nearly fell over when she saw it. So she sent me pictures of it and I just looked at those and I thought, that's crazy that I, I had looked at that clipping my whole life. And if I had just pulled it out of that, I probably wouldn't have been able to because it was glued down. But if I had turned that thing over, I could have seen the, the, uh, the people, the wedding announcement for the people whose daughter I was going to marry. And we didn't see this for 51 years. That's amazing, isn't it? And I, and I don't know how much stock to put in that, but I, it almost seems too perfect that you would just cut that little clipping out and it would just exactly be what you need to cut out to get the Porter's and Clark's wedding announcement on there. But I told Melissa, I said, really, we need to be, we need to really understand we were really meant to be married. <laughs> and, and it was just kind of a, I don't know, maybe God sometimes winks at us and just says, hey, I'm in control. And I've, I've, I've known your path and your plan and I've known your future from the very beginning. And I can wink at you here and show you and just, and whenever I get discouraged, I know it seems strange. I don't, I, I try to remember things like this to say, you know, God's worked in my life in, in, in amazing ways. Like when I hear a sermon and I'm convicted and I repent and it, and it touches me just in the right way. Or even some strange thing like that. When my mom calls me and says, you're not going to believe this. She's, you know, but that's how the Lord works. He works in amazing and surprising ways. So that's my first story. And I want us to look now at another very surprising story that we find in 2 Kings chapter 5. And if I was going to give a big idea or a big idea sentence for the sermon, we might say it this way. In 2 Kings chapter 5 verses 1 through 19, we see the surprising, simple, and transformative grace of God that requires humility to be received. Let's get a little context here. Y'all like to play Bible trivia? Yeah, we, who, who said that? All right. I like it when just kids answer during the sermon. That's, that's always a good sign. He's listening. All right. So what happened in the very beginning of the Bible? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We'll go say God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he made Adam and Eve and they had a son, uh, Cain and Abel. Then we move on into Genesis and we get to Noah and the flood and then the Tower of Babel. And then we get to Genesis 12. I'm just going to walk you kind of up to our passage in 2 Kings. This may take a minute. We get to Genesis chapter 12. Does anybody know what happens in Genesis chapter 12 without looking? Okay, good. I'm, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, Abraham, it's, it's, it's when God makes a covenant and calls Abraham. And so when you look in Genesis chapter 12, if you highlight verses 2 and 3, it's the plot of the whole rest of the Bible. You can look there in Genesis 12. You don't have to look now, but here I'll read it to you. It says, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how were all the families of the earth blessed through Abraham? Because through Abraham's family, we're going to get Jesus. And that's how all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. So that's the plot of the Bible, isn't it really? How this one man's family becomes a great nation and how through this man's family, we have Christ. So that man, Abraham, had a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. And remember, Joseph is sold as a slave. And where is he taken? 
down to Egypt. He's taken down there to Egypt. And it's a, it's a, you know, probably one of the best and most uh, interesting stories in all the Bible of how God preserves this family because there's a great famine and they're likely to all perish and die. But because these mean brothers have sold their youngest, uh, one of their, their second to youngest brother into slavery and they're, uh, they didn't like him because remember he had his coat of many colors and he was proud and all this. Well, he winds up being down there uh, a prisoner and a slave in Egypt. But he winds up rising to being the number two leader in all of Egypt and winds up collecting all this food that they can use where they have seven good years. He collects all the food so when they've got seven bad years of famine, they can really feed their country and surrounding peoples. And so that, so the family of Jacob comes down to Egypt and they're preserved and they have food to eat. But what happens is over time as they're down there, over hundreds of years, they become a mighty people. That family of Jacob becomes a mighty nation and they're enslaved by the Egyptians. And that's when we have Moses come on the scene. And Moses goes into Pharaoh. And what did he say to Pharaoh? Let my, let my people go. And so the people eventually after the plagues and, and after they, they, uh, cross the Red Sea, they, they go out into the wilderness. And how long do they stay in the wilderness? For 40 years until a whole generation dies off that had been unfaithful. And then they have Joshua, who after Moses dies, Joshua leads that new generation into the promised land. And then when they get into the promised land and Joshua dies, what's the next book in the Bible? Joshua judges. We have the judges. There's 12 judges. And the judges kind of rule uh, or kind of oversee at certain times there's this loose confederacy of all these different tribes. And whenever they come against a powerful enemy that's enslaved them, they cry out to God and God raises up somebody to lead that loose confederacy for a time. And then they get victory over their enemies and they should praise God and follow God. But what they do is they go right back to their old ways and the cycle starts over again. That happens 12 times in the book of Judges. And then after a while, they get tired of having periodic judges and they cry out to the last judge we might could say is the prophet Samuel. And they say, we want a what? We want a king. We want to be like all these other nations around us. So they have three kings. Uh, Saul, uh, David, and his son Solomon each rule for 40 years. And then after Solomon's reign, the kingdom splits. And you have a northern kingdom of ten tribes, and you have a southern kingdom of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And each kingdom has its own kings. And this is the era in which we find ourselves when we look at Second Kings chapter 5. Now this happens, uh, the timeline here, if you're thinking, how can I put this in the like world history that I understand? This uh, story occurs about 850 years before Jesus is born. So we're a, we're a long way out. This is before they're exiled, before they come back and rebuild the temple. This is during the time of, of the kings, we would say. This actually, this story occurs over a hundred years before Israel is, is uh, carried off by the Assyrians. And of course, those tribes then are dispersed and lost forever. The king in this story is Ahab's son Joram or Jehoram. 
It's interesting, there was a Jehoram in Israel at the same time there was a Jehoram who was the king of Judah, and they were related by marriage. So it's kind of, int- it's kind of interesting and confusing. And it, uh, the Sunday school te- uh, lesson that my wife is teaching actually happens to be that we're going through. I actually wanted to preach this sermon because we've been studying Second Kings in our Sunday school, and she's talking about this, trying to explain to her class this morning about how Jehoram and Jehoram were two kings that were from different families, but they were related by marriage. And we had to get out the family trees and all these things to try to figure this out uh, yesterday. But so fascinating and interesting to see how these kings, because they shared a common religion, they shared a common culture, they were, they were very much uh, intertwined. But Jehoram, or Joram, the king of Israel, he was the son of one of the worst kings that they'd ever had in Israel named Ahab. Do y'all remember who Ahab's wife was? Jezebel. Now, thankfully, Jehoram wasn't as bad as his mother and father, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. But he still uh, needed to hear uh, God's word, and he needed to hear and listen to the prophet. But he didn't listen to the prophet. He wasn't aligning himself with the prophet who would tell him God's word. Now, the prophet in Israel did this time, and you've got these two very famous prophets that we read about in the Kings. They didn't write books. Most of the time we think of prophets writing books. These two prophets, we call them non-writing prophets. You have Elijah, and who was Elijah's understudy? Elisha. So if I say Elijah and I mean Elisha, you're going to forgive me because there are two names that sound a lot alike. But Elijah uh, had an understudy named Elisha. And Elisha, when he became the prophet, he, he asked, I want to be twice as powerful. I want God to work through me twice as powerfully as he did through Elijah. And so here in Second Kings, in this area of the book, in this portion of the book, the context is the different miracles and the different prophecies of Elisha and his ministry. So that sets the stage. So let's look at this text. The story of the healing of a leper named Naaman. Now, he was not from Israel. He was actually from Syria. And it's a terrific short story. Some people will say this is one of the greatest short stories ever written. And it is fascinating, and it has a lot to teach us. Not, it's not just interesting, but it teaches us a lot about the gospel. It serves as a tremendous illustration of the gospel. And we studied this lesson in my church on July 24th. I didn't get to teach it that day, so I'm teaching it now because I was really jealous of the, we had one of our football coaches taught it. And that passage just stuck in my mind. And I thought, even to myself, I want to preach that. We're in Second Peter over uh, in Alney, and so this kind of changing gears to go from Second Peter to jump into the Old Testament. But let me share with you what the Lord has been teaching me through this passage. Here's a basic outline that we'll use. Verses 1 through 8, we'll see the surprising way the Lord works. In verses 9 through 14, we'll see the simple way the Lord works. And then in verses 15 through 19, we see the sign that the Lord has worked. What is the sign? How can we tell? What happens on the outside to show that something has happened on the inside? Transformation. Life transformation is the sign that the Lord has worked. And we'll look at that in Naaman's life. Let's look at the surprising way the Lord works. Look at chapter 5 of Second Kings, verse 1. 
Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now notice this, or you'll miss the significance. We want to think about how this would surprise the people who were reading it, who were the original audience. Well, this wasn't originally written to us. It's originally written to those people there in Israel. And this is written, at a, when we read First and Second Kings, that's written contemporary with the times. When we read the Chronicles, because we say, why are these stories retold in Kings and Chronicles? Chronicles is written after they get back from the exile. Chronicles is to encourage them and to remind them who they are. But First Kings is a little, and Second Kings are a little more gritty because they're they're writing about what happened at the time. So let's think about what is the author of this, and we don't know who wrote this, but what is the author of this account? What is he saying to his original audience? Well, what would surprise them? Just like my wedding announcement was so surprising to me when I tell you the story. What would surprise them? And they would say, "That's that's unbelievable." As it says, Naaman was the commander, a field marshal, so to speak, of the army of Syria. And by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Well, wait a minute. The Lord is our God. Why is the Lord our God working to give victory to the Syrians? This would surprise them. They would say, "What? what's happening here? Why would the God of our nation be giving victory to another nation? Because here's the point. He's the Lord God of all the nations and all the people. So back in this time, here was the way they understood how gods work. They kind of understood gods to sort of be in a turf war. This nation had this God. This nation had this God. This God did this. This God brought fertility. This God made it rain. All these different things. And so they they would kind of, now, what they would say in, in those old, old other other nations is they would say, we worship our gods here. The sad thing about the Israelites is they got in there and they said, well, we've got Yahweh, but let's worship this God so it'll rain. Let's worship this God so we can have more children. And they kind of had this similar idea that they adopted, that there were multiple gods that all did different things. So when they read this, and of course, during this time, the nation of Israel is really enraptured by Baal worship. Jezebel and Ahab had instituted that. They had made a temple. They'd set a special stone there uh, in Israel for these people to come and worship Baal, who was the god of storms and thunder. And so what they're learning as they read here in in our chapter 5, verse 1, they're seeing, hey, He's the Lord of everything. There's one Lord. He's the God over all. All the ground belongs to God. No other God is real. No other God has any turf. Now, if you think about it, it's very similar to what happens in Genesis. Now, in Genesis, here's what happens. They come out of the of the slavery in Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness, and they've got Moses there writing Genesis. And, and our brother here, he, he told us, here's what God did in the very beginning. And so Moses is telling them, in the very beginning, God made the heavens, and God made the earth, and He made the lights, and He made the animals. He made all these things that they're worshiping back there in Egypt. And so they're supposed to think, wait a minute. So what we're learning is all those things that they're worshiping back there 
in Egypt, our God actually made all those things. Those things aren't gods at all. They're created things. They're created by our God. He's the one true God. He's the only God that deserves our worship. He made all those things. He's the one true Lord. He's over everything. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? Here's the lesson. He's the Lord of everywhere. He's the Lord of everything. And if He's the Lord of everywhere and the Lord of everything, then I should submit to His Lordship everywhere and in everything. Is Jesus the Lord of your married life? Is He the Lord of your parenting? Is Jesus the Lord of your language? Not just the language that you listen to, but what about the language that you listen to when, or the language you speak, but also the language you listen to in your entertainment? What about the language that winds up in your thoughts? Is He the Lord of your thoughts? Is He the Lord of your entertainment choices? Is He the Lord of the way you think about people that you disagree with politically? Is He the Lord of the things you post on Facebook? Is He the Lord of the things that you look at on the internet when no one else knows what you're looking at? We don't want to think like these people back then did. We don't want to think, well, when I'm at church, the Lord is God, the Lord is great. And I love to sing the songs and I love the way we feel when we listen to the preaching. But I walk out of here and I go to work and I go to these different places and he's not the Lord. See, over here, maybe lust winds up lording over my life. Or maybe temper winds up lording over here. Or maybe my insecurities wind up lording over here. And so this story from the very outset urges us to see that God is working. He's working everywhere. He's working in everything. Because he's the Lord everywhere. So we have this man, Naaman. He's a man, the Bible says, of great valor. He's a great warrior. And God has granted him victory. So he's got a lot going for him. But there's one problem. And it's a big problem at the end of verse 1. He's a leper. He's a leper. Now, do you all know what leprosy is? Probably some of the kids may not be familiar with leprosy. Leprosy is a disease of the skin. And what leprosy would do is it would start small. It starts just a spot. And then it begins to spread. And it spreads to your fingers. And then your fingers fall off. And it spreads to your toes. And your toes fall off. It spreads to your hands. And your hands fall off. Have I got y'all scared yet? That's what leprosy did. Now, thankfully, we probably don't have leprosy in the same way they had it then. There's still leprosy in the world. But leprosy now can be treated. But back in those days, if you got leprosy, there was no cure. There was no cure. It was a big deal. It was contagious, somewhat hard to transmit. But the thing was, if you got leprosy, there was no cure. And so for the Jews that are reading this, they see a great man of valor. They're curious as to why God would work through him to give victory to Syria. They see that he's favored. But then the fact that this man who had a lot going for him, that God was working through, had leprosy would be very confusing to them. Because according to Jewish law, in the book of Leviticus, the skin disease didn't just mean that you were sick. The skin disease meant that you were unclean before God. Unclean people can't come into the camp. Those with leprosy would have to cover their face like this. And they would have to cry out as they approach people. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. It didn't just represent sickness. 
that disease represented sin. And just like leprosy, sin starts small, doesn't it? But it spreads everywhere. And just like leprosy, sin has no cure. I should say there is a cure, but we'll get to that. (laughs) So now look at verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, What that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria? He would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. It's interesting how this story moves along. You have this great man, Naaman. But who really moves the story along is a humble little slave girl from Israel, and we don't even know her name. She'd been carried away in one of the raids. And it would be easy to gloss over that, but can you imagine how terrible it would be to be a little girl and to be stolen from your parents? We don't even know what happened to her parents. It must have been awful. It must have been traumatic. She's had a rough childhood. But look how sweet she is. She's a sweet little girl. And she desires good for her master and for his wife. And surprisingly, they listened to this little girl. She must have been sweet. She must have made an impression. She must have been honest. She must have been taught to be that way. And so they go to this little girl, says something to them, and and they go to the king. And Naaman says to the king, Oh, the little girl in my house. Oh, that's surprising that even the king would take the word of this little Israelite girl. But the king, when he hears that there's a possibility of being healed, he says, okay, I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, says there in verse 5, he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. King says go, and he sends with them about 600 years worth of wages. Sent a lot of money over there to Israel, to the king. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, Jehoram we think is who the king was, which read from the king of Syria, it said to the king of Israel, when this letter reaches you, it says in verse 6, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now the little girl had said there's a prophet there, but this man, this king of Syria, must have been thinking, hey, certainly if there's a prophet in Israel who can cure leprosy, surely the king and him are pretty close. Because if you had a man in your nation who could cure diseases like that, he should be in the room with you all the time. But he wasn't. And it's interesting, I think, when we think about our own political situation, that we have the very truth of the Word of God. And yet sometimes in the highest and most powerful places, it has no sway. It has no influence. But it should, shouldn't it? Because this is the very truth. Well, when the king of Israel read this letter from the king of Syria, it says in verse 7 that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? 
Only consider and see how he's seeking to quarrel with me. This guy's trying to start a war. He's trying to ask me to do something that's impossible. He's just trying to pick a fight with me. But somebody must have run and told Elisha. Elisha, there's a letter. Here's what it says. And Elisha in verse 8 sends back word. He says, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he, meaning Naaman, may know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, it's surprising to me that I would think this story would be about how the king of Israel learned that there's a prophet in Israel. How, how maybe the king of Israel needs to learn this lesson. But did you know in this story, the king doesn't show up again? It would be great if the king would learn that there was a prophet in Israel and he would hear the word of God and he would lead his nation to repent and to turn to God. But he's not mentioned again. You know, God works in surprising ways for his own purposes. Apparently, what we learn in verse 8, we learn something about Naaman. We learn that the Lord wanted Naaman to know that there's a prophet in Israel. We understand that the Lord wanted Naaman to know that there's only one true God. How all these things are happening so that Naaman, that Naaman would come to put his trust in the Lord. And to the Israelites reading this and to us reading this today, it shows us how surprising and unusual are the ways of God. And that's really wonderful. Jesus, did you know Jesus talked about Naaman? He talked about Naaman in Luke chapter 4, right before they all wanted to throw him off the cliff as he opened up the scroll in the synagogue in his hometown. And Jesus, here's what he said about Naaman. He said, during this time, speaking of the time of our passage, he said, during this time, there were many people that had leprosy. Many people had leprosy. But Jesus said this, only Naaman was healed. Why would, how amazing. Why would God just say, you know what? Right here. There's a, there's a field marshal in Syria, and I love him. And I'm going to do this for him. Amazing. There were lots of people that could have been healed. But for some reason, here, this man, this man, God showed this favor to him. This wonderful, surprising work. This wonderful, surprising grace. How unusual this story would have sounded to their ears as they read it. It didn't fit with their understanding of God. Why would he care? Why would God care for the enemy? Why would God care for the enemy? Why would God care for somebody who's part of a nation and they steal little girls and they take them off and make them slaves? Why Naaman? Because the Lord's doing something surprising here. We could ask the same question of ourselves. Why would God care for me, a sinner? Why would God care for me with all the things that I've done? But God does something surprising in the gospel, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to take an enemy and I'm going to make him a friend. We also see God works in simple ways. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came, heads off to the prophet with horses and chariots, and he stands at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and he doesn't say you'll be healed what's he say you'll be clean you'll be clean but Naaman was angry and went away saying behold 
I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. Now, why doesn't Elisha go out there to meet him? I think the simple answer to that, well, there's probably multiple reasons. One, the man needs to be humbled to receive what God's going to do. Okay, we all need to be humbled to receive what God's going to do in our life. Also, that man's unclean. He might not have been considered unclean in Syria. But to the Israelites, when a leper shows up, you don't go near the leper. Especially not the prophet of God. So here comes the unclean man to the door. He sends the messenger out. And this really bothers Naaman. He feels like the prophet should come out. He's expecting fanfare. He's expecting a magic show. He wants him to wave his hand and say a prayer. But the servant walks out. Another person with no name of humble uh, status who's driving this story along. And the servant says, go out and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. Not healed, but clean. And this is insulting to Naaman. He comes from a place where there are two beautiful rivers. Now, the reason that the rivers are beautiful there in Syria is that the rivers are coming, the water is coming from these beautiful mountains in Lebanon. And it's flowing very slowly from these snow, uh, snow covered mountains and they thaw out and melt and here comes the water and they make beautiful clear streams. But now in Israel, they've got a river Jordan. And you've got the Sea of Galilee and you've got the Dead Sea and there's a river that stretches. And I think that uh, I read somewhere it, that the elevation between those two bodies of water drops a thousand feet. So the water's moving very quickly. And so when the water moves very quickly, it picks up all the dirt and all the sediment. It doesn't have time to settle. And so the Jordan River is a muddy river. Well, he knows that I've got, I've got rivers that will make you clean. It reminds me of how... Uh, we used to go swimming at Lake Bridgeport, and my grandparents had a, a place up there, and we, we would go swimming every day. We'd get up in the morning and go swimming, we'd come, we'd eat lunch, and then we'd go swimming, and then we'd eat dinner, and then we'd go swimming again. But my grandma, she never got to swim because she was always cooking. Uh, now, <laughs> I realize that now that I look back on it, but mama would come down every now and then, and she would come down and take a bath in the lake. And I just always thought that was so crazy, that she would get in that dirty green water of the lake and she would come down with a bar of dove soap. Y'all know why she used dove soap? Because it floated. It would, it would float there in the water. We just thought it was so funny. You know how old ladies were back then. She'd come down with that. She had like that, uh, that clear plastic bonnet over her head and like some swimming suit from like a thousand years ago. And she'd get, put, you know, get in a life jacket. Or she would use a ski belt so she could really get clean. She'd wash herself off, and then she'd get out, and we'd say, Mama, you didn't really get clean. You just swam in a dirty lake like we did. We're going to have to go take a shower later too. But she loved to go down there. And I'm sure Naaman thought, I'm not going to get in that dirty water and get clean. It's not going to make me clean. I need to go back to the better. Who is this guy telling? He won't even come out here. And now he's telling a servant that's to, to give a message for me to go dip seven times in a filthy river. And he was insulted. And it says in our text that he went away angry in verse 11. And then in verse 12 it says he turned and he went away in a rage. He was mad. So you have an unclean man. 
and he needs to be made clean. Like all of us, we are all sinners in need of being made clean before God. And like so many others, when they hear the gospel, they hear a simple message. It's a simple message, isn't it? Go dip in the river seven times. People hear this simple message of grace, of forgiveness. They hear the truth that they're, that they're not queen. You're a sinner. That you stand under condemnation because of your sin. You're going to be judged because of your sin. But there's been a sacrifice made. The blood of Jesus can wash you and you can be made clean. You can be saved. You can be forgiven. And we give this simple message. And how do many people react? They say, I got to do what? Oh, you can't do anything. Jesus has done it all. All you have to do is believe it. You believe it and you're saved. Believe what? Put my trust in what? It's too simple for a lot of people. It's offensive. And like Naaman, they say, well, isn't there a better way? Aren't there other rivers that would work better than me just believing that this thing happened 2,000 years ago and putting my trust in a man? Y'all really do believe that this man lived a perfect life? He died. He walked out of the grave three years later or three days later after they put him on a cross. And you're saying, I can just believe this, that he rose from the dead? And that He's the Lord of everything, even though I can't see Him, you're saying that's what's going to forgive me of my sins and I'm going to be saved? Aren't there better rivers? Can't I do something? Can't I give money to something? Can't I work my way so I can feel better about myself? No. There's not a better river. And so Naaman goes away in this rage, wanting a better river, being offended by the simple task that he's asked to complete to be made clean. But like the servant girl, he's got some other servants. Some more unnamed people in this story who come with him and they reason with him. Look at verse 13. But his servants came near to him and they said, My father, what a great term of endearment for a servant to say to his master, My father. Now, here's what the ESV says. The ESV says, It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? I think what they were saying is, This is easy. This is easy. This is great what he said to you. He just said, wash and be clean. And that must have just sounded, um, who knew? Who knows what they thought they were going to have to do. When he shows up with horses and chariots, you know what you normally do with horses and chariots? You fight. Maybe he thought he was going to show up to the king and the king was going to say, okay, here's how you get healed of leprosy. Go down there and defeat Pharaoh for me. Or go defeat this enemy for me. Or go back and bring me a bunch more gold and a bunch more silver and a bunch more changes of clothes. But all he says is, Go dip in the river seven times. Now, other translations give a little bit different sense of the passage. Uh, they'll say that the servants were saying to Naaman, if he asks you to do something great, you would have done it. And now he's asking you to do something simple. Why don't you just do it? What have you got to lose? And so what does Naaman do? He turns his chariot around. He had turned away in a rage and left. Now he turns his chariot all the way around and he goes back to the Jordan River. He humbles himself and he goes down and he dips in that river seven times. And how many times did we hear this one in Sunday school? And see the picture that the sweet church lady would hold up of of Naaman, the great commander, 
dipping in that muddy water. He does it seven times, and when he comes out, his skin, it says, is like a little child. And he wasn't just healed. He was clean. No longer was he unacceptable to God. No longer would he have had to hide his face. But he was clean and acceptable before the Lord. What do we have here? in that chariot turning around, and that humility that we see in Naaman, we have a great illustration of repentance. Isn't that what repentance is? We're heading one way, and we turn around. We're heading towards doing... We want to be the own, our own Lord. We want, to, we want to do what we want to do. We want to call the shots. And that is rebellion. Because God has told us how to live. God has told us what to do. So when we turn away from our sin and ourselves, and we turn all the way around to the Lord... And we say, now I believe you're the Lord. I think you're telling the truth. I think this is what's right. That's what repentance is. And maybe there's people here today you need to turn the chariot around. And you maybe you're living for yourself. And you need to turn around and live for the Lord. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. He turns away in a rage. But his servants plead. And he turns and he humbles himself. And what does he do when he turns and humbles himself? He obeys. That's what we do when we come to Christ, isn't it? We turn from sin and we obey the Gospel. What is the command of the Gospel? Believe. Believe. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's surprising, but it's very simple. And it's the only way that we can be made clean before God. You may think the message we preach, and we know some think the message we preach about being washed in the blood of Jesus Sounds old and backward and primitive. And David, I've never heard the song. Uh, he's washed me in the blood, washed me in the blood. I, I need to find out where that is, uh, where you, where, who, who does that song. But that's great, isn't it? Isn't that, that's our message. You need to be, just like Naaman needed to be washed to be made clean, we need to be washed. We need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. And it seems offensive. It seems like you could find a better river, but there's no better river. There's no other way to be made clean. So God works in surprising ways. God works in simple ways. And there is a sign that the Lord has worked. And that sign is transformation. Here's the way Warren Wiersbe said it in his commentary. He said, Naaman lost his health. Then Naaman lost his temper. Then Naaman lost his pride. Then Naaman lost his leprosy. And then Naaman lost his paganism. Look there in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God. Naaman goes back to Elisha the prophet. He and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Elisha comes out to meet him. And Naaman has learned the lesson that all the Baal worshipers in Israel have not learned. That these great kings who don't follow the Lord, the lesson that they have not learned in Israel. But Naaman learned it. There's no God. He says in Israel, but there's no God. The passage teaches us in all the earth except for the one true God. And he says, now will you take a present? Can I pay you for this? Isn't a wonderful thing about the gospel is it's free? 
And look what it says in verse 16. Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. I don't want you to think I did this for you. God did this for you. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. What are we seeing? Transformation. I know there's no God but this God. I'm never going to offer up another sacrifice to any other God. And in fact, if you'll give me two mule loads of earth, it shows you that way that they thought about the gods having turf. He said, I need to take some of this turf back to where I live. I'm going to build an altar on it so I can offer up my sacrifices to the God of Israel because I'm going to take a little bit of Israel back with me. And that's showing the transformation in his life. But look at verse 18. It's interesting. He says, but in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon, which is a Syrian god of thunder, a part of their Baal worship system. When I go into the, this temple to worship there, uh, he says, my master or my master goes into worship and I go in with him and he leans on my arm. And if I bow myself down to the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, will the Lord pardon and forgive me in this matter? And Elisha, being understanding, says, yes, understand. When you go into that temple, you're helping your master. You're not going to be bowing down to the God of thunder because you know now that there's only one God and it's the God of Israel and you're not going to offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to anyone but the Lord. This is a surprising story, isn't it? It's a simple story. It's a wonderful story. But the way I know that the lesson took hold when he went down and turned that chariot around and went down in that water, the way we know the lesson took hold was that his life was transformed. I've got this fellow in my church. I told Trampus I was going to be talking about him today. I don't want his ears to burn. But we've got this man in our church named Trampus, a young man. He's like some of these guys I run across in their 20s over in Olney that even though our church is there, we have a youth group, we have several churches, you, you just meet these young people and when you actually just start to share the gospel with them, it's so unfamiliar to them. You know, they, they were in church, they were maybe in Bible school, but maybe some seeds were even planted. But the gospel seems unfamiliar. It was that way with Trampus. And it's interesting and surprising how we came across Trampus. We were having, uh, of all things, and y'all know, I mean, I, I, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I just had this idea one time that, that we weren't reaching the people that lived on the western part of our of our uh, town. There's an apartment complex at the very western end. They call it Western Heights. The very western end of Olney. And I said, well, what if we put a tent out there in front of that apartment complex and then we could go knock on the doors and invite people to come over to the, t- we'll have church in the tent because we apparently we can't get them to come down to the building. So we made up some flyers. We got it. We borrowed a tent from like a, the motor, the Christian motorcycle group and got an evangelist and we're going to have church over there in the tent. And so Sawyer and I, this is a long time ago, Sawyer was just a little boy. And we decided we're going to go, um, we're going to, go to all the apartment complexes in Olney with the flyers. And we're going to take the flyers and we're going to uh, hand, hand out the flyers to the people and invite them to come to our, to our tent meetings. And so we were going through over there by Blue Bonnet, which is over by the school. 
and they've got a lot of apartments there. And there was we we knocked on the doors and asked the people to come. And there was one more door, and, and Sawyer said, "Do we need to go knock on that door?" And I said, "No, that's a maintenance. That's a maintenance uh, apartment. They just keep tools and things in there." And Sawyer said, "Well, there's a punching bag over there on there." And I said, "Well, we can knock on it if you think there's somebody there." So we went and knocked on the door, and here comes Trampus to the door. You know, he's like just gotten out of the shower. He doesn't even have a shirt on. He's, he's like, who are you guys? And I'd never met him before, and I remembered his name from when he played football because I thought, what an unusual name. It comes from an old Western TV show, the, the name Trampus. Well, he showed up that night to the tent meeting with his dad, and, and then after that, he started showing up to church every week. And so he just kind of became a, a part of our church. We'd go play golf and hang out and do all these different things. And, you know, we were sharing the gospel with him and all these. But one day, I finished preaching. We, we, we kind of were milling around after church the way we do, you know. And Trampus walks up to me and he's shaking like this. And I said, man, are you okay? What's going on? He says, I got to do something. I got to do something. I said, what do you got to do? He said, I need to become a Christian. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that he, that he lived a perfect life? He was a sacrifice for your sins. He died three days later, he rose, and he ascended into heaven. Do you believe that? you believe that, he, that, that by trusting in him and what he's done, that he's forgiven your sins? Yes? All right, I said, okay, there you're a Christian. And uh, I said, now if, now if you really believe that, it's going to change your life. Like the way we'll know that you've believed, the way we'll know that your heart's been changed is your life will transform. And so it wasn't, it wasn't too much longer after that that one night Trampus called me up. And he said, man, I got to tell you, I got to tell you something. Uh, he said some, you know, buddies at work, they're always making fun of me. They're always saying, oh, you go to church now and, and you don't like to, you don't like to hang out with us anymore. You don't care for us anymore. He said they kind of, they kind of got under my skin. And they said, hey, we're going to Wichita Falls. We're going to go to the clubs. We're going to go have a good time like we used to. And he said, well, you know, I haven't done that in a long time. I'll probably go. I'll go with them. I'll fun. And he was calling me to tell me that he got, he got with them and the, where they went and the things they talked about and the things that they were doing. He said, all they he said, here's the crazy thing, Brother Chad. I was doing all the things with those guys that a year ago were the most fun to me. They were the things that brought me satisfaction and pleasure. And I was out with those guys and I was miserable. And that's just an illustration, isn't it? Of the way that the heart changes. His desires had changed. He'd been given a new heart. And it enjoyed doing different things. He said, all the things that used to make me miserable, like sitting in church and hearing the preacher, I'm, I like that now. And all the things that used to give me great pleasure make me miserable. And I could tell it kind of bothered him a little bit. And so this morning I caught him in the hall and I said, I'm just, I'm preaching about you. And I reminded him of this conversation. And we talked about how now over time it's even become, you know, he says, you know, and now I can hardly even watch a movie that has a bunch of profanity in it without, it just hurts my heart. I said, well, that's how we know, isn't it, that we're changing. Because, because what happens whenever we're transformed by the grace of God, when we humble ourselves and are transformed by the grace of God, we get a new heart that wants new things. We're a new creation. The old is gone. All things are made new. And our heart says, I will not worship another. That's the transformative grace of God. 
Has God transformed your life in that way? Where you want the things of God. That those things appeal to you now when they did not appeal to you before. But how are we transformed? How do we receive this grace of God as we read about in our passage in James? We must be humbled. And we must humble ourselves. We must come to grips with the fact that we're not just sick, but we're unclean. We're sinful. We're unacceptable to God. We're as good as dead. We're destined to be judged outside the camp. And what is the judgment for sin? It's eternal separation from God and eternal death. And we can scoff and we can be offended by the cure, but only if we humble ourselves and put our faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and the promise of eternal life found in the resurrection of Jesus, only then can we be saved. What can we say of the grace of God this morning? It's surprising. Maybe we could even say it's wonderful. It's simple. And the grace of God, when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will change you. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. And so what I love about this story is I can picture in my mind maybe 10 or 20 years later, you have these guys sitting around a campfire somewhere in Syria. And Naaman is telling the story of his healing. And one of the servants says, is it really true, Father, that you only worship the God that they worship in Israel? Yes. And is it really true that you were healed of leprosy? How is this possible? That our commander worships the God of Israel. How is it even possible that you were healed of leprosy? And you can imagine Naaman saying, okay, I'm going to tell you all the story and you're not going to believe it. It's the most amazing thing you're ever going to hear. Okay, there was this little girl in our house. And she told me there was a man in Israel that could heal me. And so before I knew it, I was on the way it with horses and chariots and 6,000 years or 600 years worth of gold. Uh, of wages and we got down there and the king tore his clothes and I thought well this isn't going to work but sure enough I go out to this prophet's house and the servant comes out and tells me to go bathe in the mud this is it was the wildest thing guys but let me tell you what happened God changed me there's no other God but the God that they worship down in Israel and I worship him here and the whole thing boiled down to me having to listen to a slave girl And having to listen to the servant of a prophet. And me having to listen to my servants. And then having to humble myself and go down to that muddy river. And not just bathe in it one time, but I had to be baptized in it seven times. What a wild and exciting story that must have been to hear Naaman tell. And we'd walk away wondering, why would the God of the universe care for this commander in Syria? But I can also ask this question. Why would the God of the universe care for you and me? Sitting here all these years later, all the way over on the other side of the world today in Graham, Texas. But the invitation is the same. Turn your chariot around and come to Christ and be made clean. And don't you don't have to go to a muddy river. We come to a risen Savior. And in the New Testament, we're told that we're baptized into Christ. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, 
Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. That means humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. So I hope today that you can point to the work of the Lord in your life. And you can look back and say, it's so surprising. It's so simple. It hasn't been things that will make the headlines. But I can tell you that I see God's providential hand moving and guiding and protecting and opening doors and closing others. And like a river that has many twists and turns, some joy, some heartache, some contentment, some pain, you can see that your life with Christ is like this river. And you can say, this life with Christ is precious. And there are no better rivers. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the blessing of this church and their attentiveness during this message. We're thankful for Your Word, which we know does not return void when it goes out. And so, Father, I pray that today, as we leave this place, we would be reminded of of how exciting it is, how surprising it is that we can know the God of the universe and participate in the divine nature. That we can believe a simple gospel and that that simple gospel will transform us. But Father, help us have the, the humility to receive Your goodness and Your grace. We're thankful for the cross today. The simple gospel message of the cross that if we will look to Jesus, if we will look, we can live. Father, help us as we leave this place now to live for You, to die to ourselves. We pray all these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen.